I was very much focused on performing an idea of hot sex as opposed to experiencing pleasurable sex, as opposed to being in my own body. I was instead reaching for this ideal. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest, Tracy Clark Flory, is the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Good and Mad and Want Me. She grew up torn between the notion of girl power and the glass ceiling and the hair-flipping enticements of pop culture. We follow her journey to become what she felt that men wanted to then understand it, but ultimately finding out what she truly wanted sexually. From watching porn as a girl, to writing about it, and then being on the porn set with her favorite porn star, to then becoming an activist. Here is her story. Tracy Clark Flory, welcome to the Sex, Body and Soul podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you? I am very well, and I am more than thrilled to talk to you about your profession. You're a sex writer Mm -hmm. and your own journey, discovering your own sexuality and desires and how you grew up in this sex-fueled internet era of (laughs) social media and porn. Mm -hmm. And we're very much influenced by that. And You start your book, which is called Want Me, A Sex Writer's Journey into the Heart of Desire by Tracy Clark Flurry. And you start in this book on a porn set. (laughs) And I want to understand from you, first of all, what got you into writing about sex? Mm. I just was always drawn to it. So I started out as a, a feminist blogger at Salon, Mm -hmm. straight out of college. And I kept gravitating towards the subject of sex. And one of my bosses took notice eventually and officially assigned me as a sex writer. And so that's, that's really where that career took off, was that I was finding ways to do it. And then someone took notice that really that that was where I wanted to go. And Mm -hmm. I think that interest arises from, gosh, growing up as a kid in Berkeley with a couple of, you know, sex positive hippies for parents, where sex was talked about in a very positive way. My dad especially waxed poetic about sex often, but in a very sort of spiritual and abstract way, um, where sex was presented as this beautiful, spiritual moment of connection. And on the other hand, I had MTV and pop culture that was presenting a very different message um, around what sex was. And so there was this sort of contradiction that I was experiencing in my world growing up. And I think that that contradiction was what really drew me towards it as a topic, that I wanted to understand it Mm -hmm. better. So what first research did you do? Where did you start with that journey? What did you want to understand more? Mm -hmm. I mean, porn was a major topic for me that I wanted to understand. You know, that partly probably arises from, again, growing up with my parents and my dad in particular being 
an outspoken feminist who really delivered these kind of girl power messages around what matters most is your mind, looks don't matter, and then stumbling across his porn browsing history <laughs> as, a, as a young girl and going, oh, <laughs> wow. my feminist father who, you know, says that what matters most is a woman's brain is also subscribing to perfect10.com. And so that, <laughs> that <laughs> contradiction, I think, definitely sparked an interest. And then growing up online and having access to porn and poking around and really going to tube sites in my early 20s and trying to understand what straight men wanted by mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. to the most viewed tab and um, seeing what men were watching and trying to make sense of it. And so as a journalist then, I really dove headfirst into trying to understand that realm of fantasy. So just so the listeners know, you are cisgender, heterosexual, and you like men. Yes. Okay. Yes. I think that's important, certainly these days Mm -hmm. where there are so many options. Mm -hmm. So, well, first of all, were you horrified that your dad was watching porn or were you like, kind of like, did you not care or... Did you find it contradictory? Yeah. I mean, I think my experience as a 13-year-old coming across that was really, it was a feeling of heartbreak because Mm -hmm. growing up, all of the messages, the sort of girl power messages that I received from my dad were in such contradiction with the messages I received from culture. And so MTV, for example, was delivering a certain message about what sort of expectations I might be met with in the world as when I grew up as a young woman. And to get these feminist messages from my father, it felt like, okay, there's hope. Mm, <laughs> there are men mm. out there who, mm. you know, have those feminist beliefs and who, you know, are not primarily motivated by, you know, looks. And so the porn discovery was heartbreaking in that sense in that it felt like in that moment, I have a more complex understanding of it now, but in that moment as an adolescent, it felt like everything he told me before was a lie. I mean, I'm sure that he there's two compartments in his brain, and that is what he wants for you as his daughter and how he sees you as his daughter and his own sexual desire, right? Yes. And I also think that, you know, at the time when I was interpreting this as a 13-year-old, I didn't have a proper, full, complex understanding of the realm of sexual fantasy, mm. particularly within the world of porn. And so mm. I interpreted it in this very black and white way because I was so ill-equipped to understand that world mm-hmm. of fantasy. Now, as you discover porn, what's going on at school? Are you getting sex ed? Are you learning <laughs> from your teachers? I mean, you've got these very liberal parents who are telling you everything, but what's going on at school? Yeah, well, and even as liberal as my parents were, you know, sex discussions were very abstract. And so there wasn't a lot of really, I don't think, useful, concrete discussion. It was really more of a like conveying of, of sort of values around sex, but in a, in a generalized sort of way. So my parents didn't get into the nitty gritty of it. And then in middle school, there were anatomy diagrams. In high school, there were anatomy diagrams and discussions of, you know, condoms and birth control. But there was no discussion of porn. There was no discussion of fantasy. There was no discussion of desire. Pleasure. Mm-hmm. No discussion of pleasure. I mean, that's one of the things to me that's so outrageous. Decades ago, 
the scholar Michelle Fine wrote a paper where she talks about the missing discourse of desire in sex education, mm-hmm. that there is this total absence of discussion around desire, that we talk about the danger that sex mm-hmm. poses to young women, but we don't talk about desire and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And as a 13-year-old, you're starting to you know, masturbate and you know what feels good and you don't quite understand it. And it's a it's a very confusing time. I didn't grow up with porn. I grew up with maybe magazines that I would find that my brother or father would have. But, you know, I certainly I certainly wasn't being bombarded with all these images on social media and easy to find porn sites. So I can only imagine how confusing that was. So that gets you through your sort of teen years. And then what happened? Did you find yourself emulating what you were seeing on porn with your first partners? Like how how did that go down? Yeah, I found myself emulating what I'd seen in porn and what I'd seen in mainstream movies, you know, TV commercials as well. I think Mm -hmm. that there's so much that we absorb in terms of sexual scripts in the culture at large. And obviously porn provides this very explicit concrete evidence around the act of sex itself. But I think so much of what I absorbed was from mainstream culture too, like just hours and hours of watching MTV, (laughs) you know, as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so all of that definitely was played out in my early sexual experiences, which is to say that I was very much focused on performing an idea of hot sex as opposed to experiencing pleasurable sex as opposed to being in my own body. I was instead reaching for this ideal. And I think most women go through their lives with that, not giving themselves permission to enjoy because they're so busy serving the partner. And what's, you know, in the 50s, what was drummed into girls was you have to keep your husband happy. Yes. You need to make sure he is pleasured, but there is no discussion on pleasure. Yeah. To this day, there's no discussion of pleasure. Right. And, you know, in a lot of social media platforms, they don't allow that word to be a hashtag. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just something very wrong with that. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this? Oh, my God. I have too many thoughts on this. I mean, (laughs) I think it's no surprise that girls and women end up really disconnected from their own bodies when it comes to sex. The developmental psychologist, Deborah Tolman, she writes about how girls and adolescents encounter what she calls the dilemma of desire, which is where their embodied sexual feelings come up against the material and social dangers that are associated with their sexuality. And so there's a disconnect there, right? We learn to disconnect from our bodies very early on. And that sort of desire to be desired that I write about so often in my book seems like just the natural result of that. And I found that focusing on being desired often functions as this convenient cover story for girls and women, because girls and women are taught to focus on being desirable, not to desire. They're focused on, like you're saying, Mm -hmm. like to please, to provide pleasure. And for me, setting out to understand men's desire Mm -hmm. to sort of be a good sexual student was a socially acceptable way 
of accessing that realm of sex. And so, you know, my early explorations with pornography were very much framed in my own head as being a good sexual student and trying to understand what men wanted. But in the process of that, I came to understand that, you know, I was also beginning to derive pleasure from this, that I was poking further beyond just, you know, the most viewed videos on these sites and actually going to videos that I enjoyed mm-hmm. and that gave me pleasure. And so I think it was, it was a convenient um, cover story in a way. And I think that women are forced to come up with all sorts of different cover stories for their own desire. And mm-hmm. focusing on being desired is a way to reroute your desire through men. So when you're, say, 1920, what had you discovered in your mind that men wanted? I would say (laughs) really emphatic displays of a woman's enjoyment of sex, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a major one, right? Like, and that was... The ooh-ah, ooh-ah, ooh-ah. Ooh-ah constantly at the slightest touch. The slightest touch would (laughs) spark, you know, a cascade of moans. And that, you know, that was something that played out very much in my sex life. Like I was, you know, a serial orgasm faker. I think in my 20s, I routinely faked orgasms, you know, in my casual partnerings. And, you know, part of it, honestly, was because I, from the very start, was invested in performing that Mm -hmm. fantasy of this unencumbered woman who's awash in pleasure. Mm. Wow. Okay. So what was the pivotal moment where the switch went off in your head and you were finally able to relax and probably, I would imagine, communicate to your partner what it was that you wanted? Yeah. The switch really came for me. I explored a lot. And so I think part of the switch happened because I was given this period of exploration where I tried out all sorts of different things and in many ways experienced sort of dissatisfaction in my sex life. Like I think I reached a point where it was so clear that in enacting this fantasy for men, I was not getting the pleasure that I wanted. I was not getting the satisfaction I wanted. But where it really shifted was where I got into a relationship with a man whose desires really did not track with all of the assumptions that I'd made about men's desire. And so (laughs) there was this irony where it felt like I'd for so long had been studying up on what men wanted. Mm -hmm. And then, and I was finding this too increasingly in my career, the more that I was interviewing sex researchers and the more that I was interviewing men about their, their sex lives and their desires, the more that my sort of idea of what straight men wanted, the more it complex it became. And the more I was challenged on my assumptions and and stereotypes, frankly, about men. And so it was really entering into a relationship with a man, you know, who is not (laughs) visiting tube sites, you know, whose idea of hot porn was like, you know, sexy nudes on Tumblr. Um, So I I think in the safety of that relationship where I started to develop real intimacy, I was able to push back against a lot of my assumptions and really shift out of this performance mode. Because when we first got started dating, he actually didn't want to have sex at first. He wanted to wait. He wanted to get to know each other better first. He wanted to to develop intimacy first. Mm -hmm. And that was the scariest thing I'd ever encountered was this man who was saying no, (laughs) 
Yeah. I don't want to have sex with you. <laughs> I want to wait. I'm not ready. And so that was just really like the perfect challenge for me. Yeah. You know, I have to say I had a very similar experience to you where, you know, in our early 20s and late, certainly late teens, but early 20s and all the way through your 20s, you have no idea. You have no idea what you're doing and, you know, you're faking it or trying to please. But then somebody comes along, a good man, right? A good mm-hmm. man comes along mm-hmm. that helps you to receive pleasure and makes it yeah. acceptable. Right. And so therefore you, you give yourself permission yeah. to feel pleasure. Right. And so did you end up marrying this man? I did. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I, I kind of hate the narrative, to be honest, because there's such a Prince Charming, you know, aspect to it. Like, I hate the, I hate the fairy tale aspect of it, that like the right man came along and And the truth of it is that, like, my sort of sexual coming of age and and coming into my own is hugely influenced by the space that this relationship has provided me, this sort of safe space for exploration and acceptance. But there's also a lot that that I've done on my own and that, you know, is not just a myth. I definitely don't want to perpetuate the myth that, like, it's all about finding the right man who has the right moves or something along those lines. Mm. Like... It was really about the, and it's not about being saved by Prince Charming. It's about entering into a relationship where I felt like I had the safe like space to begin that exploration mm-hmm. journey. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your writing and your research for a second and just dot over there. Because, you know, when I started reading your book, your book, as I said, starts on a porn set. I mean, obviously, we need to know everything that you witnessed, <laughs> because I know you've been on a lot of porn sets. You've done a lot of interviews. You've watched the whole thing. You know, there's a million questions in porn that I have that I would love to understand. But tell us about that first experience on that porn set and what you learned. Mm, gosh, I mean, my first experience was a, was a pretty intense experience in that it was a fetish shoot in a bar. And so it was like a group scene and it was, it was incredibly intense. So it was in a little bit of shock from that particular scene and that particular experience because it was a lot to experience as one's first. But the scene that opens the book where, you know, this was many years later where I was sitting on a, a porn set with two men, uh, one of whom I'd sort of come of age watching. And so there was something really powerful about that of that, you know, Here was a man who I'd watched in my early 20s and who had helped, you know, create this sort of fantasy ideal of what hot sex was. We were sitting there casually waiting for the shoot to begin and we were just chatting casually. And he and his co-stars started talking about girls these days who watch porn and think that that's what makes for hot sex. And he was expressing in disbelief, like, oh, what I perform on camera isn't what I like to do in my personal life. Sometimes it doesn't even feel good, like that it's all a fantasy. It's all make-believe. And so that was a really surreal experience of hearing from one of my sort of unwitting early mentors around sex Mm. to really underscore that it's fantasy, that there is this creation of fantasy. And that's what being on porn sets taught me. It was 
seeing the behind the scenes. It was seeing the creation of that of the fantasy. It was everything that you don't see in the final product. Mm-hmm. So it was the negotiation of boundaries. It was, you know, stopping the scene to ask for lube. It was the laughter and, you know, between coworkers when the cameras aren't filming. It was really only through sitting on porn sets and seeing that 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 I really came to appreciate how much what you see in that frame on screen is constructed. So in your opinion, is porn created for men? Oh, I mean, um, some of it's definitely created for men. Some of it's created for women. Some of it, I mean, it's it totally, especially now um, with the internet, like there are so many different niche audiences, especially with OnlyFans. You know, it's it's the sort of segmentation is is amazing of the industry now. A lot of the mainstream industry assumes a male viewer, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are, are women on the set enjoying themselves? Some are. Some are not. I mean, you know, um, and, and when I say some are not, it just means that it might, that, the, you know, pleasure might be performed. A really excellent book that came out this year called Porn Work by Heather Berg looks at the porn industry through the lens of labor and interviews performers over, I think it was like a decade, Mm. where she really teases out the nuance of performers' experiences, where for some performers, there is passion and there is pleasure and there is authenticity. And for Mm -hmm. others, it's a clocking in and clocking out, you know? And so there's a variety of experiences. So in your mind, Tracy, is porn good or bad? I mean, I'd, I would, I certainly would lean in the good direction in that I have a really passionate belief in the power of sexual fantasy and what it can do for people's lives. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it has been transformational for me. You know, I, I write a lot in the book about the misconceptions that I brought to porn, but I also write a lot about how Porn helped me to get in touch with my own body mm. and my own desire mm. and mm. my own capacity for desire um, and pleasure mm-hmm. that is huge. Yeah. Life changing. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want really good sex and intimacy and great orgasms? I mean, it's healthy. That is yeah. healthy. And whatever works for you, which is not yeah. dangerous or destructive, I endorse it. If you were to have a daughter, would you want her watching porn? And at what age would you want to? I would have no different opinion. I have a, a boy who's very young, but boy or girl, I have no different opinion in terms of like whether I would want them watching porn. I am extremely eager to talk about pornography with my kid at an age-appropriate time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish that I'd had those conversations growing up. Um, you know, and I think obviously because of the nature of my work and what I've written about, um, that will happen for my family, you know, um, there's so much to be talked about. Um, and it's mostly a top, uh, not a topic of discussion period, or it's just, you know, don't watch it. It's bad. No, that doesn't work as we know. No. How will you address it? Do you think Like you have a, let's say you have a, um, 11, 12 year old boy now. Right. That's mm-hmm. probably the age that they're going to come across stuff online. What yeah. are you going to say? Yeah. How are you going to explain it? 
I think the key thing is that it would be an ongoing conversation so that it wouldn't be a sort of like the way that people often think of the traditional sex talk of like, you know, let me sit you down, son, and talk talk to you about the birds and the bees, that it would be that that sex is part of life Mm -hmm. and that it's an ongoing conversation and that they can be just little moments of dialogue, you know, or larger conversations. And that, you know, that I plan to do that throughout my kid's life in age-appropriate ways, ways mm-hmm. so that it's it's part of this ongoing conversation in the same way that we would talk about any number of other issues. You know, so, I mean, in terms of concretely, what would I say about porn? I think that there is this cultural illiteracy around fantasy mm-hmm. um, that what I would really want to address. I would want mm-hmm. to talk about fantasy, make-believe, entertainment. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of times you have young people looking to porn and really not understanding Mm. that aspect of it, that I certainly interpreted it literally. Mm. This is what men want. So at the Body Agency, as you know, we actually partner up with this amazing app called Meet Rosie. And it is an app that has been developed by a gynecologist who was really struggling in her practice because most of her patients would come in and say, I I have no desire for my husband. I don't know how to get turned on. And she and her peers and her colleagues in the industry were all having the same issues where it is real. It is real that a lot of women struggle with their desire, their own desire, just getting wet and excited and... So she developed this app, uh, Meet Rosie, that deals with fantasies. It tells stories and you can download. It's all very innocent. It's not hardcore at all. But I love that. The fact that it is, it's science-based fantasy. It's Mm science-based medical fantasy because every woman has the right to have pleasure and enjoyable sex. So... That falls in the social justice department. And I know that you are a huge activist in this realm. (laughs) Where's it coming from that men, and I hate the whole men versus women conversation. I mean, we need men, as in your experience, Mm -hmm. you needed a man to help you on your journey. We need men to be involved in this conversation. But why Mm -hmm. is it that, you know, you're a journalist in the in the media and social media on these networks like Facebook and Instagram. We're blocked when we start talking about female pleasure. What on earth is that all about? Yeah. Not just pleasure, but sex, breasts, the female form. Oh, yeah. Even menopause was blocked the other day. Mm-hmm. What What's going on? We can talk about erectile dysfunction till the cows come <laughs> home. But... Then it comes to women and, you know, what's going to happen when you really start promoting your book, for instance? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I was just this morning on Instagram and saw someone posting about, you know, um, educating people about how to adjust their settings on their account so that that sort of content isn't censored because the default for, um, I believe the default is really to censor Um, those kinds of posts. And so you have to kind of manually go in there and say that you're willing to see sensitive and potentially offensive, you know, material. Um, The idea, of course, that like 
women's sexual pleasure especially mm-hmm. is offensive <laughs> or sensitive material arises from a culture that suppresses women's desire, mm-hmm. that attempts mm-hmm. to control it, that says it's not okay, that associates danger with it, that tamps it down at every turn. Is it a power so, thing? Is it a power thing yeah, by the men in yeah, gray suits? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that there's real fear, I do, about um, women's sort of sexual capacity and hunger. Um, I, I think that historically, there's been so much that is aimed specifically at trying to control women's sexuality. Mm. Um, And also trying to control our fertility and our uh, baby making. Um, Exactly. It's all part of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, And if you think it's bad here, just go to the developing world and it's on steroids. Um, Yeah. Very, very frustrating. Um, so um, you are naturally a shy person. I've yes. gotten to know you over the last few weeks. <laughs> uh, and you've written a book all about your own desire. How, yeah. how is that? I mean, how now yeah. the world is going to know about you and your yeah. journey, which, by the right. way, is going to help a lot of people. So whoever's listening, you need to go out and get this book. Want <laughs> Thank me. you. I could not put the book down. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. First of all, you're a sex writer, but you've, this is very personal, Tracy. This is your own, (laughs) you know, intimacy and personal journey. Mm -hmm. But how did that go for you? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty easy for me to write in this way. And I think that partly, you know, I was always the shy kid in class, but like would never raise my hand, but then I'd like write a killer essay, you know? So it's like writing has always been my adaptive response to my shyness. Like mm-hmm. I might not raise my hand and, you know, give the answer in class, but like I'll, <laughs> I'll follow up and compensate for it with my writing. And I think that my career as a writer has been similarly like, you know, compensating for shyness. It's my way of expressing myself in the world in a way that feels safe. And so there is this contradiction where, you know, I am pretty shy and in my day-to-day life, I might not necessarily talk so openly about these topics, but then in my writing life, I'm pretty fully present and there in, in expressing my full self. And mm-hmm. so write, just writing is the space where I'm able to do that. Of course, publishing the book, then I've had to sort of confront the ways in which that enters into my real life, that I'm going to be sitting at Thanksgiving with relatives who've possibly read the book <laughs> you know? well also i mean are you the girl that goes to a cocktail party and and they're like what do you do and tracy's like well i'm a oh, sex yeah. writer and yeah are you grilled i mean is does is everyone i mean you're like carrie bradshaw from sex right. in the city yeah right Except are you grilled <laughs> <laughs> not a whole lot i mean not a whole lot, especially in like, you know, it was different in my 20s when i was like single and dating and and a sex writer i think now like as a mom to like, you know, my social sphere is very parental. And so, you know, <laughs> but I bet those housewives are like, all right, Tracy, give, give us some tips now. <laughs> right. Are you getting right. that? Not, not, not yet. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think initially there's just the, the, the hurdle of like, of, um, revealing like oh yes and you know our kids play together and oh also by the way i've written this book and it's called want me like you know 
<laughs> yeah. So did they show you any kindness or do you get animosity? Honestly, what I have found is that I am way more nervous about it and I am weirder about it and have way more baggage about it than anyone else. Like mm. any, like I think people are going to be weirded out and freaked out and then they're not. Like, And that might be because I live in the Bay Area and it's very liberal and progressive, um, but, or maybe the people I choose to associate with, but like, you know, typically the response has been so like, yeah, like no, not really a big deal Mm -hmm. or, or they're intrigued and interested and think it's cool that I've written this book, but there isn't shock. Yeah. So this podcast is called Sex, Body and Soul, as you know, and I always end with wanting our listeners to get some tips from the people that we interview. And obviously you're an expert, but to get really intimate with you for a second. So I want you to think about your own sex, your own body, and your own soul. Mm -hmm. And what are the three different things that you do for those three parts of you? Sex, body, and soul. Mm -hmm. That have been life-changing for you. Like anything you've done differently or learned about those three things. Sex, I would say it's really been about embracing fantasy where mm-hmm. I am not grilling my fantasy. Like I, I spent a lot of my life feeling disturbed by the fact that a lot of my fantasies seem to contradict with my feminist beliefs. And it was really only once I was able to better understand how fantasy functions and how it can be cathartic and all of that. And I was able to let go and embrace my fantasies. Like that was huge for me in the realm of sex. Because, I mean, a lot of women fantasize about getting raped. That's not to say in real right. life they want to be raped. Right. Right? No, absolutely but not. You've got to absolutely be able to not. separate reality to fantasy. Exactly. Fantasy. Yeah. And getting rid of the shame that's associated mm. with fantasies. Mm. I mean, that's, it's, that's huge. And that is life-changing. In the realm of body, I would say strength, working out, having, feeling physical power in my body has been huge. And that's been something that's really only happened in the past, I mean, honestly, like a couple years of, you know, swimming and biking and paddleboarding of like doing these like physical things in the world. Some of them things that scare me and really like feeling triumphant and powerful has Mm -hmm. been huge. And that's Mm -hmm. really felt like, like accessing that sort of physical, almost, you know, athletic and sporty side of myself has Mm -hmm. felt like a real, like, stepping into myself and soul. The first thing that comes to mind for me is nature, getting out into nature, the experiences that I've had hiking, swimming, wild swimming in the ocean, in the bay, being in nature, especially in, in ways that are sometimes, you know, filled with awe and terror. That for me, accesses a really, you know, deep part of myself. Sounds to me, my dear Tracy, that you're a little bit of a thrill, a shy thrill <laughs> junkie. Yeah, maybe so. Okay. Maybe so. Yeah. I'm not a psychologist, but it's certainly looking that way. Based on that, my very last question to you is, what's the craziest sex story you have written about? Crazy, like personal sex story or? No, what, what sex story that you've written for anybody? Like, what's the absolute craziest thing that you've written about? the craziest thing that I've ever written about. I mean, there's so many, it's so hard to choose. Um, 
The um, sex doll, maybe? The sex dolls? Yeah, I'm like, it's either the um, conference I went for um, size fetishists or the sex what? doll factory. But, okay. Yeah, I went, so there was a, I went to a conference for, I wouldn't call it crazy. Um, I actually thought it was re- like a really wonderful um, heartwarming experience, but it was a conference for people with fantasies around size differentials or fantasies around the idea of inflation. So people who fantasize about either like being the size of like a model train person or fantasize about being a giantess. So these like really fantastical scenarios and talking with a man who had fantasies about being the size of a ladybug. And he told me, about how, as a child in kindergarten, he remembered going out into the playground and seeing a bunch of girls crowded around a ladybug and that he'd walked up as like a five-year-old or something and he'd said, you know, what are you looking at? Oh, can I see? And they were like, get away, you're going to hurt it. And that in that moment, he fantasized about being the ladybug. And that like from then onward, like he has memories of, of just longing for smallness of, of, of being wow. that small, vulnerable creature. So I think that was, that's like one of the most, I would say, powerful experiences I've had in terms of reporting on, on sex and desire. Well, all I'll say is Carrie Bradshaw, move over. <laughs> You've obviously had a fascinating life. I absolutely encourage everybody order this book and go to thebodyagency.com to get more details and Tracy it's such a pleasure thank you for being on the show thank you so much this was so fun thank you for joining me for this episode of sex body and soul remember you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop the body agency Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts. Thanks for listening.